Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's telling us there's going to be a financial accident or recession. When you get in, you can get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is really profitable. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Welcome back. This podcast is an executive spotlight, and it's brought to you by PGM Fixed Income. Thanks for joining us. And today's guest is a good friend from a long time ago, Randy Brown, who is the chief investment officer for Sun Life and the head of insurance asset management at SLC Management. Randy, thanks for being on. It's great to see you, and thanks for taking the time. Great to be back, Stu. Great to see you as well. I'm trying to think of the last time we talked. We saw each other when Insurance AUM was way fledgling. I think we had sushi in the back bay in Boston, right? It was fabulous. But it's been a minute and it, it was great. We just got done, you know, full disclosure to our audience. We just got done catching up. So the first thing we want to start off with is the way we start them all, which is what is your hometown? What was your first job? Not the fancy one. And what makes insurance asset management so cool? Okay. So my hometown is actually more difficult to answer than most people know um, because I uh, travel quite a bit, but I'm going to call it officially Boston today, except that I'm officially resident of Florida for those of you on the Internal Revenue Service. (laughs) Where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore. Oh, in Baltimore. So grew up in Baltimore. Went to college in upstate New York and, and graduate schools, and then uh, worked in New York for most of my career. A brief stint in London before moving to Boston. Very cool. What was your first job? Well, if you really want to go to first, first job, I, I worked at a summer camp in sixth grade summer. I worked every summer since the summer of sixth grade, and uh, that was really the first job. Very humbling to change you know, trash cans and clean out bathrooms, but that's what you could get as a sixth grader. But professionally, my first real job was uh, coming out of business school, engineering and business schools, was um, as a mortgage-backed securities trader at Solomon Brothers in 1986. There you go. And uh, what makes insurance asset management so cool? I think it's the best. Really, I love it. What makes it so cool (laughs) is that it's it's a multiple-dimensional Rubik's Cube. There's so many complexities that you have to solve for. You know, I used to be a total return person as well. And there you say, oh, I really like this sector. That's it. This is rich. This is cheap. I'm going to sell that, buy that. That was the decision making ending. And then the implementation began. So we have to do the same thing. I really like this sector versus that sector. I get to have a longer time horizon, which I think is fantastic. Because it plays to what I think is my strength as a, an investor instead of just a trader. But then that's where really the, the fun begins. So what happens? What's the impact on my capital and my accounting and my liquidity? And where am I relative to internal and regulatory guidelines and state guidelines? And so it makes it a much more interesting problem to solve, I think, than I've just got to go beat a benchmark. I had someone 
say this to me. And I thought it was pretty well, pretty succinct and pretty accurate. And the person said, what makes insurance asset management so different is the number of externalities. And I thought that was such a great term because it covers all the things that you talked about. I mean, I, we put together a chart that shows sort of the CIO and the investment team and then all the things that connect to that and all the considerations you have in navigating what is already a very challenging capital market. And you're up against smart people. But I've always said, I think insurance asset management is the smartest money in the world because of all of the externalities in addition to trying to beat a benchmark in the capital markets. Yep, I think that's really well put. And so you have a unique background versus a lot of CIOs. Can you describe it and talk a little bit about how how it helps you with your mandate, which is we were just talking about how crazy busy you've been. Give us a little bit of background on you. So as I said, uh, I began my career as a trader, you know, on Wall Street for close to 14 years. So I had a daily P&L. You really could trade actively. I tended to gravitate to the new products where there really may not have been a market established and I had to create a market, right? So educate people about the merits of these particular cash flows and get them to buy into the value creation. But I had a, I had a daily P&L. And so you learn to really get a feel for the pulse of the market. Then I became a, a portfolio manager for insurance companies. So there it was a matter of you know, bringing it all together, some of the complexities that we talked about. And now, you know, step three of the career here is as asset owner, primarily, where now I get to be purely the decision maker as opposed to implementing someone else's agenda. So for me, I think it really helps because I think about the markets in a balance of short-term, long-term. And as a trader, you look at technicals and fundamentals, supply, demand, but psychology. How is the market feeling and how is it going to react? But I get to have the perspective of having a long-term horizon balanced against that short-term, what's going to happen today. So we tend not to be traders. With these portfolios, we're turning battleships right? Takes a long time or aircraft carriers are even bigger. Takes a long time to reposition an insurance portfolio. I don't care what accounting regime you're in. Takes a long time. So you have to balance. And and then also what's affectionately known in, in to investment people as the operation, right? The operation of an insurance company is complex and changing and your cash inflows complex and changing. And then there's a lot of regulatory environment. Right now, we had a, I did a, a webcast the other day and we talked about that it was reported that there was like something on the order of $700 billion worth of unrealized loss in the Schedule D assets of, and obviously with private assets, that number has got to be a, a trillion. And, and it's, it's simple math. It's just the run-up in rates that we saw over the last 18 months, right? So you've got long-dated liabilities. You've got a bunch of them. You've got a very, very sophisticated portfolio. How are you navigating this particular investment environment? This one to me feels a bit unique, right? Again, I've 
seen a lot of cycles, probably more than most. And uh, this one feels a little bit different. So part of it was anticipating, again, looking at the long-term read of supply, demand, and technicals versus fundamentals. I would say as an organization, we did a really good job anticipating some of the moves. And this is where you know my background was sort of engineering and finance. So this is where one of my trainings is in engineering. You always look at the boundary condition. Where does it break? Well, to me, it broke when you had 19 trillion of developed world debt at a negative nominal yield. That's not sustainable. I call that a disequilibrium state. It cannot persist in perpetuity. So it had to reset. And when it reset, the view was it was going to be faster and further than anybody in the market was anticipating. That was part one. Part two was we felt inflation, everyone was worried about deflation, said inflationary pressures are building up. And I think inflation is going to be a very significant factor on the market. So if you put the two of those together, we had a view that rates were going to go up very quickly. And we thought inflation would be more persistent than the market is predicting. And both of those, uh, we've been fortunate, and both of those uh, calls were right. So we repositioned the portfolio. And again, it took five years of work to reposition it to get us to where we are today. And where we are today, I think, is in a, in a very strong position relative to you know, a lot of our competition. The tide has gone out, for sure. You have to make sure there's still you're still afloat at the end of the tide going out, which we, we will be. So that's how we've kind of navigated it. I think we have a fair amount of dry powder because we are anticipating some very attractive buying opportunities that are, are developing and will continue to develop. Yeah, you were like right on the money both times. What form did that take? You know, the fixed income geek in me says you made a significant duration call which takes a lot of what's affectionately known as internal fortitude. Because if you're wrong, it's career limiting, potentially. I'm not being, I'm trying to be funny, but it's, that's a big thing. But are you saying that you guys were actually, you made a, an, a directional call on rates? Yeah, so um, in my old seats, that's what I would have done in this seat. You know, we, we run a very closely matched ALM book. So durate, not only duration, but key rate durations across multiple points in the curve. So I don't have the latitude to make a duration call. But let me give you an example of where that decision-making process manifested itself. So if you thought rates were going to go up quickly and inflation was going to be higher, then, you know, we have a large real estate book right, both debt and equity, probably on the equity side, larger than a lot of our competition, because we think it's a really good asset class. So what did that mean? That meant that cap rates, cap rates relative to an abnormally low level of risk-free rates looked fine, actually looked relatively wide at the lows compared to history. So if you just looked at the spread, you would say, oh, cap rates are fine. I looked at it and said, those are unsustainable and need to reset. So the, the simple math is if you have a cap rate of four and the cap rate resets 
that's a 25% drop in the value roughly of, of your property. Like that's serious. You bet. Serious movement, particularly as those are more marked market. So if you had that view, what would you do? Well, you would sell office, right? And we had sold in uh, retail because we said, well, co- with this much inflation and the end of the subsidy of the COVID era, consumers are going to be under pressure. So we sold in a big way. Rough, we cut our office exposure in half well in, in advance of what we're seeing now in office. And you reposition that into sectors like multifamily and industrial where you had pricing power. Multifamily reprices once a year. People move. You get new people in at market rents. Market rents were going to be higher because of inflation. In, in industrial, we saw a systematic shortage of industrial and logistics in particular that got manifested, you know, or exacerbated by the pandemic. So we had a dramatic re- repositioning of the real estate portfolio, and it, it has served us very well. It's the number one question I get these days, you know, by analysts, by investors, by everybody is about the real estate portfolio. That would be one simple example. That's a great example. I mean, that's another great call, right? So one of the things that may not be terribly apparent is that you led two of the biggest asset management firms for insurance companies prior to joining Sun Life. I have said, and others, the industry has changed more in the last 24 to 36 months than it has in the last 24 to 36 years, right? How have you seen, and we're both, I mean, this isn't videoed, but we both have our fair share of gray hair, right? You know, you'd said you'd saw more cycles than most. I think that's true. And I think that that's helpful when you get into a situation like this, where we're in uncharted waters, but to your engineering example, like, you know, what simply doesn't make sense. How have you seen this industry change? And really, where do you think it's going to go? I totally agree with you in terms of the magnitude of the changes we've seen. If I were to go back, I've been at Sun Life close to eight years. So I sort of left the, the active asset management piece of the business eight years ago. But at that point, what, what had I seen in terms of changes to then? You know, when I started, it was really BlackRock and Deutsche Asset Management, where the two were kind of neck and neck. And probably number three at that point was 30 or 40% of the assets. So it was really a pretty tight oligopoly. If you, if somebody particularly had a fixed income mandate, and that's really where the focus was at that point, pretty much you were going to see it. And a track record I'm really proud of when I was at, at Deutsche, if we saw a piece of business, we won 65% of the time over the three years. It was extraordinary growth. And we really pulled a global team together. And But then what happened? All of a sudden, everyone woke up to the fact, wow, these insurance assets are big and sticky, and maybe I want to get into them too. And, you know, so you saw others going into the business, which then if you fast forward, so it got more competitive. Then if you fast forward, which was really one of the things that 
drove me to want to go from an asset manager to an asset owner was this view that you know you had pensions run using LDI as a term. And if we call that on a spectrum of one to 10, if they were to zero and you had insurance, which we use the term ALM and that was a 10, I said, because of changes, one change was unfunded pension obligations going on balance sheet. The pension funds were moving from zero higher and insurance companies because of the persistently low rates and the need for more income in soft markets and liabilities were moving because they needed more, were moving down to the left and they were gonna meet. But my view was they weren't gonna meet at five, they were gonna meet at seven, meaning that the pension world was gonna take a part of the playbook of insurance companies, but insurance companies were gonna take part of the playbook of pensions. So that led to this explosion of the focus on, let's call it non-investment grade fixed income, right? We all did investment grade corporate structured finance and government bonds like basically that's what that's what the industry was now private credit and lots of different alternatives have really become mainstream to the point that you've seen this major influx of pe companies starting insurance companies and then taking it one step further where they're actually focusing on asset management to grow their business to the point where they're really consolidating around. You've, you've heard all the verbiage from Henry Kravis to Apollo to now the latest move by Blackstone, where really you're coalescing around this insurance mandate. So it's been a massive change in focus from just core to alternatives and a tremendous influx of other players. So it's a significantly different market than it was 10 years ago. I see a fair amount of regulatory movement too, right? I think the regulator is trying to figure out how to get better transparency on all the private assets that have been added so that they understand the risks and so forth. So, I mean, you know, we've done a couple of podcasts on regulatory changes and it's challenging just to be kept abreast of all those changes as well. So when you look at the current markets right now, capital markets, what do you see? I mean, is there something mispriced that offers value in your mind? And is there something that's mispriced that is overdone? I think we're at a very interesting point in the market and we really haven't been here before, right? So there's still some very large issues facing us and which way it comes out is anybody's guess. So I kind of say lots of talking heads are going to tell you what's going to happen. And I'll tell you, I have no idea because the confidence interval here is extremely wide. I can make a very convincing case for a deep recession and I can make a very convincing case for no landing and everything in between. So what are some of those things? We're very high employment still, despite recent slight weakness, employment is still very high. Inflation to me feels persistent. And you've got, you know, the UAW strike. Like I, I read one research piece today, which essentially their demand, if you factor in the higher wages, the shorter work week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is something like 150% increase in wages. Like that's the demand. 
So I think you've got some structural, you've got a structural imbalance in the availability of housing and in particular structural shortage of affordable housing. You've got this massive demographic of aging boomers and a shift in the workforce composition. You've got geopolitics that start right here at home. The latest discussion about the government shutdown, you know, is troubling to say the least, but the dysfunction in the, on the U.S. political front, you know, I'm not a historian, political historian, but it feels unprecedented. Some of the uh, bid and the ask there. You've got a government that has to fund a massive deficit. At the same time, you have foreign buyers that are buying fewer treasuries. And you've got a rising rate environment. So that's going to consume a bigger part of the budget. And that bigger part, it's got to, it's one of two things has to happen or three things. It's got to crowd out other spending. You have to raise taxes or you need a significant increase in GDP, which will raise the whole tax base. Something's got to give. So if you take all that as a background, it says that there are lots of different ways this could develop. So that's the long answer. The short answer is, You've seen a disintermediation of banks, which I think creates lending opportunities, particularly in the private markets. Commercial mortgage lending, 65% of it was from regional banks. They've got issues right now to deal with in terms of ALM mismatches and liquidity and disintermediation of their deposit base into money markets. So we see an opportunity. You know, We've got a team that originates mortgage loans, both for the balance sheet and for third-party clients. I see opportunity there, private credit across the rating spectrum. You know, we've got a 70-person team that originates both, again, for the balance sheet and for third parties in investment-grade private credit, typical life goes stuff. But then below investment grade, there are opportunities that I'm seeing in funding in some of those where people just need liquidity. And you're able to solid credits with good covenants, with good collateral. If you can provide liquidity and write a check and make decisions, there's some really good opportunities. So those are here now, Stu, and I think they're going to develop further as this comes along. You know, I think equities, you know, in my view, but I'm a, I was always a bond guy. Equities are expensive, but I'll put a big uh, asterisk on that is uh, I've always been anti equities. So don't listen to what I say, because I've never gotten that one right. But <laughs> certainly, as I look at it, when I think uh, you know, the, the S&P 500 is so not diversified, right? I think something along the lines of a third of it, it roughly is in a hand, you know, two handfuls of companies. That's not a representation of the broader environment. So how you invest in equities is, is also going to be impacted here. So sorry, long answer, but there are a lot of pockets. Great answer. I was listening to Howard Marks' podcast this weekend, and he said, believe me, I, the last thing I want to do is misquote this guy because I have so much respect for him. But it was something on the order of seven stocks drove the S&P return and the other 493 are flat. And I was, that was a real eye-opener for me, which is, I think, is really interesting, right? So... Let me take a couple of pieces that of things that you've talked about and ask the last question. It's the second to the last question. I've got a really pithy, interesting, fun thing that I've come up off the top of my head that I'll throw at you in a minute. 
we're friends, you know that it's going to be goofy, whatever. But you talked about real estate and moving out of office in favor of other sectors. That's obviously a result of the pandemic and folks who are working either hybrid or from home and not five days a week back in the office. Right when we came on, we were talking about your advice to newer employees. What advice would you give someone who was newer to your organization? And by the way, I sincerely believe that you are one of the finest managers and mentors of people. You are universally respected in this business without a doubt. So if you could give some advice to people who are newer in the industry, what would it be? Well, first of all, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, the payment, the, the check, by the way, as I told you, <laughs> in the mail. So yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's very kind. It's true. You've been all over this business and you've been at it a long time. And we have some mutual friends who are also OGs in this business, but you know, I mean, you're, you're very good at this and it's helpful. I think people benefit Randy when they hear from, I mean, not everybody's going to get a chance to have lunch with you, right? Unfortunately. But if you had a group of people and you were, and you were having lunch with them, looking back over everything you've got, what would you tell them? Yeah. So thank you. I think it's really important to mentor newer employees and you know, I was on the board of my business school for like 20 years. So I would do a lot of mentoring of the students there as they look to, uh, typically in business school, you see a lot of people who are trying to transition careers. So at one point or another, I did something that I'm really terrible at, which is I actually wrote down my thoughts. And I came up with a little list that I call my Randyisms, for lack of anything uh, smarter. So if I were to give you know, advice to my kids as an example. You know, number one, focus on your job. A lot of these are going to sound so basic, but there are a lot of people who spend so much time worrying about all the stuff going on around them. Don't worry about it. Focus on your job. Let other people worry about the perceived politics and the perceived people like to expend a lot of negative energy. Don't focus on on your job. You need both performance and service. And I'd say good service can overcome poor performance for a while. We all have styles. Maybe one shop is delivering an overweight to structured finance and another one likes credit. Another one likes illiquidity. And those are going to come in and out of favor. So good service can overcome poor performance for a period of time. So it's it's critical. This is a full contact sport, 24-7. A lot of people are like, "Ah, you know, I want to punch in at nine and punch out at five, and that's fine. But I think it's going to be difficult to excel and differentiate yourself, right? This is a full contact sport. When you give specific examples, as I'm doing now, right, you you can say something, but if you give an example, it makes it stick better. We always talked about, we don't sell products, we offer solutions. So let me understand your problem. Let me empathize with your position. And then let me offer some suggestions about potential solutions you may want to consider. This is a very different approach, something that I've been doing my whole career. And I think the market has finally caught on to stop talking product 
Like when somebody comes in and says, hey, how are you? I've got these four funds in the market. Which one do you want? Like that conversation doesn't last very long. Under promise and over deliver. A lot of people do the other. Tends to backfire. Communicate, especially bad news early. Don't just give a problem. Give the solution. So that's a big one, right? A lot of people like to say, gosh, you know, our technology is really bad. Okay, great. So thank you for telling me. Let me go solve the problem for you. No, technology is bad. Here's specifically something I think would give us a, an advantage. Here's why. I'd like to go run with that if that's okay. Like that is a vastly different conversation and that will separate you from the herd immediately. Like give the solution. Connect the dots. It's a big global world out there. So when you look at something here, Think about what are the implications, the proverbial flapping of the wings of the butterfly. Relationships matter a lot. You and I just talked about that. Culture is critical. So you got to be part of the culture. We'll come back to that with office. Collaborate. I said, people want to matter. So thank yous go a long way. Think long term. Be aware of the game of telephone. So what you say, this is what I've learned. It's extraordinary. What I say versus what people hear, it's like vastly different. And sometimes I go, how in the world did you hear that? These are the specific words I use. And it's because some people come into a conversation with a bias of what they want to hear, and they interpret what you say to fit their worldview as opposed to what you say. So you got to be really aware of that. This is also another one that will really differentiate you. Answer the question before somebody asks you. So give you an example, again, going back to my example. ABC Corp's on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. You're a client service person. You know your CIO is gonna get a call at eight o'clock from their CEO. Hey, do we own, Susie, do we own any ABC Corp? So there's two answers. I don't know, I'll get back to you. Or yes, we do, we own this much, it's at this, you know, unrealized gain loss. And the view is from our manager or from my team is we think it's a hold because of the following reasons. Which one do you think is better? So answer the question. Don't make them call you. Send them the before. Be a team player. Don't use the word I. Use the word we. Right? It's not your money. It's our money. And then embrace change. People hate change. Even if it's good, I always use the example. If I'm like, hey, Stu, I've got a million dollars in gold I want to give you. People will go, oh, my God, how am I going to carry it? Where am I going to store it? Oh, woe is me. Like, are you kidding me? So people hate change, even if it's a great change. I love those, by the way, every one of them. I learned the we thing when I was at Neom. And one of the things I've learned in running this business is that I can't accomplish too much. I need we. And everybody does it. True. I did this. I bought that. No, no, we bought that. Are you going to write me a check to cover the cost? Like we bought that. Exactly. So let's go back to where you started, which is we were talking about re return to office. So culture is critical. And I think it's really hard to have cultures over Zoom unless you've already got a deep relationship. So Stu and I were commenting, we haven't seen each other in a while, but we kicked up within five seconds. It was as if I saw him yesterday. 
because we have a good relationship that's been established over time, and that doesn't happen over Zoom. So there are a lot of people who don't want to return to the office because guess what? It's really convenient to put on a T-shirt and sit at home and get the extra time. Absolutely. But being in the office, particularly for newer employees and establishing the relationships is like, in my view, critical to your career success and frankly, critical to the success of the organization. Because if you have a bunch of people who don't come into the office, it's very hard to create loyalty to the company. So you're going to, you're going to see more turnover in staff, in my view. And so interestingly, I'm doing this podcast from my office at work. It's typically the newer people who don't want to come in, the less new, trying to start not you, the older people are the ones here because we understand the value of the informal communication. When I'm walking to the elevator for lunch and I see an analyst, I'll say, come on, walk with me. Let's go grab lunch. And you you talk and you find out and it gives them exposure. And I'm like, you know, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, you're interested in that? Let me see if I can help you. Never going to happen unless you're here. So that's the value of it. I love it. All right. So here's the, here. you ready for the out the door questions? I am. This is, I want to introduce some optionality to the podcast. So you ready? You can do either or both. The first one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? And the second one is, who would you most like to have lunch with, alive or dead? Okay, best piece of advice. Uh, it was given to me by a client of mine when I was a trader who said, focus on your job. Focus on your job. All this stuff you know, was going on in Solomon Brothers at the time. Focus on your job. So I thought that was great advice because, as I said, people spend a tremendous amount of negative energy on stuff going on around them. Right. Right. Oh, I saw Susie talking to Steve over in the corner. I wonder what they were talking about. I heard a rumor and it's just distracting. Yeah. Burns up a lot of time and energy for sure. Yeah. So that would be one, I guess, to your second one. Boy, it is hard, but I would love. I'd love to sit down with Warren Buffett to figure out, like, he was way ahead of all of us. Oh, right? way and ahead. Yeah. Insurance is really a way to aggregate long-term cash flows. And then he, above anyone else, got the hall pass to invest in a completely different style. Right? He was big in equities when we were all like, what do you mean you want to buy a triple B bond? Right? Exactly. Very, very different. So that would be one. Absolutely. It's so great to have you on, man. I enjoyed this tremendously. Great advice. I love the Randyisms. I love your perspective on the market. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time. No, it's always great to see you. And um, um, thank you for inviting me to speak on the podcast. And um, it's been a lot of fun. We're thrilled to have you on. We've been joined today by Randy Brown, who's the CIO for Sun Life and the head of insurance asset management, SLC Management. I want to thank our sponsor today, which is PGM Fixed Income. Thank you so much for, for making this executive spotlight possible. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for a podcast, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.